English 256. Okay, the first thing I want to point to all of you, and I hope some people are listening along, um, is that starting next week, we're done with the Thomas King book, which I hope that you liked. Um, and what we're moving to for one week is a bunch of readings that are going to be on Blackboard. So I'm just showing you where to find them. They're in the same place that you found every other reading that I've posted on here so far. But under you know readings on our Blackboard site, if you go down to you know next Monday, that PDF is there for you already. And the one from Wednesday will be there, and the one from Friday will be there in advance of class. So what we're doing next week is kind of, we're taking a different tack, right? So for the last two weeks, we've been talking through this book, but I hope what you've seen is that the talking about this book is kind of doing two things for us, okay? On one level, because this is like a 200 level English class, talking about this book is kind of just getting us a little comfortable with talking and writing about literature. That is to say, not just like talking about the content of the book, but also talking about some of the narrative strategies, the rhetorical strategies, like, oh, why does he start every chapter with the same paragraphs? Why does he end every chapter with the same paragraphs? Why is he using particular words? What's up with his tone? Why does he like directly address the reader? Why does he ask these rhetorical questions of us? These questions are independent of the content of what we're reading. You understand that? Like, they're just questions about the writing. And of course, in an English class, we actually really care about that. We don't just care about the content. We care about how it's written, right? So that's one thread of what we've been doing in the past couple of weeks. But the other thread, of course, is about the content. It's about what's actually being written. And the point is not that we better understand, like, Thomas King's life story or anything like that. The point is that what we take from these chapters, we distill out of these chapters, is a couple of really good themes or ideas or lessons about Native American life and Native American culture, Native American politics, and the relationship between settlers and natives that we then have in our heads for the rest of the semester as we move forward. And we can kind of use them as, like, let's imagine we have our, like, tool belt on, right? And we like need to uh, think about the difference between oral and written literatures. Well, now we've talked about that. Like we have that from King. Okay, maybe that's something that we'll talk about when we talk about native poetry. Right? We've got that idea. We've got that theme from King. Maybe we want to talk about like the difference between uh, legal identities and cultural identities among Native Americans. Well, we can talk about that. We have that from King. Right? And these are not all things that we've come across on Fridays. Right? These are things that on other days we've come across on the forum, or if you're listening on a podcast, these are things we've talked about too. So that's a tool that we have in our tool belt. Maybe we have in our tool belt a, a kind of more thorough sense of like the whiplash or seesaw nature of Native American history and Native American uh, legislation with Native American people. Okay? Maybe we have as another tool in our tool belt this um, uh, sense of the stereotypical Indian as opposed to the reality of an Indian experience. Maybe we have in our tool belt this idea that like, um, we usually expect to find quote-unquote Native American people um, in rural settings, right? The city is most often identified with non-Native people. Like maybe that's an idea that we have with us, and then when we go to the novel that we're going to end this class with, maybe that's a novel that really explodes that idea. But we have that idea with us from the beginning, okay? What I really like about this book is that as I listed off all of those things to you, if you've been following along, doing the forum, which you all have, ideally if you've been listening along as well, 
you will have realized that those are big concepts. We've discussed them all. But on very few occasions have I kind of like sat up here and lectured to you about those things. Right? Instead, we get them through the literature. That's why I start with this book, because I don't want to start for the first couple of weeks of class with like a bunch of dry lectures. I want to start with talking about a text. But it just so happens that this text subtly, surreptitiously, in the midst of entertaining you, is teaching you all these big lessons too, right? So again, just to reverse, two strands that we're getting to with this book. One, just to start thinking about and talking about literature as such. Talking about tone, talking about structure, talking about narrative effect, talking about rhetorical decisions. That's one strand of what we're doing here. The other strand is talking about all of these themes and ideas that we're gonna be able to take with us, these tools in our tool belt. I car died last Friday, right before this class. Did I say that in class? Yeah. So this thing, that's, it's dead, it's gone. I just got it picked up at the house by like a tow company yesterday. I only bring this up because it's a funny story. Um, I got it picked up by the tow company yesterday to just like scrap it or whatever. And my middle son, whose name is Henry, or my youngest son, but my middle child, whose name is Henry, who's two and a half, he was looking out the, out the window as the car was being towed away. And he just started fucking bawling. He just started crying. And he was like, why is the car going away? And I said, well, it's broken. And he said, you can't fix it? And, you know, I didn't take that as, like, the ego hit that I maybe should have. Um, and I said, no, I can't. And then he said, I could do it. I have a hammer and a screwdriver. And I was like, that's not going to that's not gonna do it. But we have those tools, okay? We have the tools we need now, having read this book to like interpret the literature that we're going to interpret, even if like we don't know a lot prior to coming to this class about Native American literature. Any questions about that? Okay, so let's put that into action a little bit today. So I want to get to the King stuff, and, and maybe we'll get there by the end of class. Like, I'm, I guess two things that we might get into by the end of class with the King stuff is this chapter, the beginning, and in some respects the end of it, but definitely the whole thing, is very different than the other one. Right? Why? And what's the effect of that? We can get into that in a little bit. And then the second thing is that there seems to be this kind of overarching theme of this chapter that Kieran really nicely put in her post as kind of like um, the idea that like oftentimes people perform something like the illusion of ethical behavior, or that like we think we like to think that we're being ethical, but in fact we're privileging our comfort. And when push comes to shove, when we actually meet a difficult situation, we tend to privilege comfort as opposed to ethics. That idea, that theme, and then like, what is the relationship between that idea and that theme and the book as a whole? But before we do that, we might get into those things, but before we do that, I actually just kind of want to have us like take that screwdriver out, that tool, that interpretive tool, or that idea, and like try to use it to talk through something else, okay? So this is not a shameless attempt to like uh, connect to your generation or anything. I'm not trying to do that, but I am pulling up a TikTok, okay? I'm pulling up. TikTok. Uh, big TikTok news today, too. Shit. November is going to get banned unless they do something. Anybody have TikTok? People have TikTok? Okay, I'm not super familiar with TikTok. Funny story, it's a Friday, okay? You guys get me in a little bit of a loopy, loopy mood. I'm happy that the weekend's coming. Um, last semester, a couple semesters ago, we were talking about TikTok or something. We were talking about like, cultural appropriation on TikTok in a class of mine. And I was like, yeah, I know TikTok, like Charlie D'Amelio. Like I had heard that name, but when I was saying it, I thought Charlie D'Amelio was a guy. 
like I didn't actually know who it was. So everybody kind of looked at me askance, and I was then I went and looked at who Charlie D'Amelio was, and I was like, oh shit, I'm telling all these people in this classroom that I like have seen a 16-year-old dancing on the internet. So I'm just I'm not gonna talk out of my ass anymore about TikTok. I thought Charlie D'Amelio was a guy. I didn't know. I didn't know. Now I do. I'm all the better for it. Okay, let's read let's listen to this or watch this TikTok. Hold up a second. I don't know how to keep, okay, I can pause the TikTok. Okay, cool. I'm gonna have to run it through and then we'll watch it a couple of times. And I'll post these online for people who are listening. Oh my gosh, he even drinks water indigenous. So this is the big upshot of the video, right, is that actually this dude is not doing anything. 
He's literally doing nothing. He's taking a sip of water and he's looking up at the sky. But what's happening is the person on the other end of the phone, right, in this act, is um, imbuing all of these really, really daily and totally normal actions with all of these expectations, right, that are not coming from the person at all, right? The person is just sitting there. He's not, like, being an Indian in this moment. Right? He's just being a person, right? But we bring, as settlers, we bring all of these expectations to this. So yeah, that's really good. That's kind of the big upshot here. What other expectations? What about, like, when he looks up at the sky and the speaker says, like, oh, he's, like, communing with his ancestors. What is that? What expectation is that? Stereotype that we have. Like your spirituality? Yeah, this like new agey, like exotic, strange spirituality that like you can speak or commune or kind of think about your ancestors by looking up at the sky and like you can see something about them that's meaningful, right? Yeah, so spirituality, this new agey, exotic sense of spirituality. Um, he drinks a sip of water and he says, oh, he's drinking water like indigenous, like as if like a native person who's taking a sip of water is doing it different than us because of the nature of their identity. Um, the other one that I just had in my head and now it's gone. Oh, he's about to yawn, but the speaker says, thinks that he's about to say powwow, right? This idea that we can only associate native people with traditional practices like a powwow, right? That no, something quotidian and banal, totally commonplace, com like completely evidence of nothing more than humanity, like a yawn. That's not what you expect from a native person. What you expect from a native person is for them to say powwow. That is to say, what you expect from a native person is just this insistent, traditional, cultural role. Not a person who's actually existing in space, but a person who actually is existing in your mind. That's what you expect of native people. Okay. So yeah, this is like a lighthearted thing, but like TikTok can be fun and it can be educational. You just got to follow the right accounts, I think. Charlie D'Amelio, not educational, as I found out after I said it. Okay, so that's one. Native TikTok's cool, there's a couple of them. But yeah, Notorious Creed, he does a lot of stuff. Uh, this is a longer YouTube video that I want to show and then we could talk about it. It's kind of similar ideas as the TikTok, but um, in, in a little more depth. It's not how it ended. Is what separates the true believers. It's Omo Shabai, Omo Shabai, Omo Shabai, Omo Shabai. Buck ass naked on a wrecking ball. Fuck. That should be illegal, man. I blame Obama.
you know, ever since I lost all that fucking weight, this thing doesn't really fit anymore. Uh, try the other ones by the spirit mask. They're, they might fit you. Spirit mask? Yeah, by the dream catchers. Which dream catchers? Uh, the purple ones with uh, the fur on it. Yeah, perfect, Anna. So, like, the idea of Native people as pure decoration, as um, embellishment, as pure culture, right? 
And you see that kind of in really stark relief by the end where like the older native man comes in and he's like, do you have anything about treaty rights, about history, about colonization? And what all they can give back to him is like, we have coyote stories. We have animals speaking to us, right? What they're trying to give to that man is a bunch of kind of like cultural things that signify only something like entertainment, only something like aesthetics, only something like the idea of the Indian, whereas the man is asking for something different. Good, what else? What other kind of like ideas come out of this that we've talked through a little bit? I mean, just the idea of the Indian more generally something that comes out of this that didn't really come out of the TikTok is like all of the, the like actual visual like things that we associate with Indianness, right? Like dream catchers and turquoise and like long hair in a braid or held back with a hair tie, that kind of stuff. Like these visual markers of indigeneity that we have in our head that are not necessarily real or true, right? What about what happens at the beginning? Does anybody know what they were talking about at the beginning when they were walking into the store? Anybody have like a 1980s movie knowledge? Anybody understand the reference to the buck naked on a wrecking ball? What's that? It was Miley Cyrus song. Yeah, it's like a Miley Cyrus video from like six years ago. So you can tell when this was made, right? But the point is not that like they're talking about Miley Cyrus or something. And the movie they're talking about is actually an Indiana Jones movie. Nobody's seen that Indiana Jones movie? Where like, they're in whatever, South America or something, and Indiana Jones is trying to rescue the damsel in distress, and they like, come upon the chief of this indigenous uh, tribe in South America, and they're performing a ceremony where the chief literally rips the heart of like a captive's chest, and while he's doing it, he says like, umum shabai, umum shabai, umum shabai, umum shabai. The idea is not that you need to know like all of those details, but you need to know that what they're talking about is Indiana Jones. You've heard of that, right? Indiana Jones. And Miley Cyrus. So what's the point then? As they're coming into the store, before they put on all their native stuff, right? What are they talking about? Yeah. Show us that like they can fit in with American culture too. Or not even just that they can fit in, but that they are, right? That like it would, it's completely normal, completely conventional to be talking about quote unquote American culture. Like what could be more American than Indiana Jones and Maya Cyrus? Right? <laughs> Just like pop cultural references. Like before they put on their costume. So if we think about it in these terms, then this is like where we get into the complexity of this video. Again, it's just funny, all right? But like we can do a little bit more with it. Like. These are two native men who, before they get into that store, are talking about Indiana Jones and Miley Cyrus. They're just talking about pop culture. When they get into the store, what do they do? They change to look more Indian. Yeah, so they change to look more Indian. They don't become more themselves. What do they become? Stereotype. They turn themselves into the stereotype, which goes back to that idea that we've talked about with the King material, is that like native people often feel this pressure right, to align themselves with the stereotype in order to be identified as what they are, even though what they are really isn't that stereotype at all. Now, because this is a funny video, this does not, like, portray the psychological trauma of that experience. It actually portrays, like, how some Native people use it to their advantage, right, in order to sell things and basically make money off of unsuspecting settlers, right? who like want to get back in touch with nature and so they think that they need to like rub sage on their body or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. But these people are taking advantage of that in a certain way. 
But then the complexity, there's an additional complexity at the end because when that old native man arrives and says, like, hey, you know, I think, do you have any books on tribal law? Do you have any books on sovereignty? Like, the critique actually flips back around to those young native men. What's the critique at the end? It's that these young native men are kind of play acting this indigeneity, they're play acting this native identity, but they're only acting the part that is for settler consumption. They're not also providing the part that is actually important and relevant and integral to contemporary native life. Right, so there's like a really kind of complicated critique going on. On one level, these two native men who run the store are like critiquing the idea that you need to look and act native in order to be native. But then by the end, those two men are also being critiqued because they are not attending to like politics. They're not attending to history, right? You can see it that way. You can see it as a critique of those two native men who are not really attending to, they're being ignorant of native politics or history. But you could also see it as another critique of settlers. Right? Because the idea here is that the vast majority of people who are going go into the store, they're going into the store because they want turquoise and they want dream catchers and they want sage, right? They're not going into the store to find treaties and law and history books, right? And so that can be a critique of settlers as well, is that going all the way back to Anna's first point, what we want from native people is the idea as opposed to the reality. We don't really want to talk about the history, right? We don't really want to talk about the bad acts that have happened. Those are quite inconvenient for us to think about, right? What we want is just what makes us happy now and what allows us to feel comfortable in our identity. This actually gets back to what we talked about last week, right? We take what we want from Native culture, Native identity, the stuff that makes us comfortable and the stuff that makes us feel okay on this place. What we don't take, and what we often just like ignore and pretend that never happened, is all of the kind of terrible stuff we had to do to get to this place. Does that make sense? You never knew you could do so much with a three-minute YouTube video. So this actually segues us really nicely into King, right? Because the big thing that King is talking about, the kind of overarching theme that King is talking about in this section of the book is like, we pretend to care. Does anybody want to talk through that, that theme? Kieran, you mentioned it, but kind of everybody mentioned it. This idea that we pretend to care about things. Yeah. Like, he had the quote at the end, and it was just like, he talked about the overfishing of cod on the Canadian coast. Like, that could have been dealt with before was an issue, but it wasn't. So then when it did happen, everyone, like, blamed each other rather than taking responsibility. Yeah. And I they don't, were, like, don't. showing they cared, but they just wanted to make it look like they were caring versus actually taking care of the issue. Right. We quote-unquote show that we care only after the issue has become essentially irresolvable, right? What does that do? Like, what's that type of action do? It's actually quite impotent, right? There's, it's an illusion of care, as you put in your quotes, right? If we only pretend or perform or act like we care after the fact, does that actually accomplish anything is what came is asking, and the answer, of course, is no. That all we're doing in that moment, when we pretend to care after something has already occurred, when we do this kind of reactionary performance of care, this reactionary performance of ethics, all we're doing is what? We're not making the situation any better. What are we trying to do? Yeah. Make ourselves feel better. Yeah, we're just trying to make ourselves feel better, which is a totally natural thing, by the way. Like, we want to just, like, 
conceive and interpret the world in a way that makes us okay. Totally fine, get it. Like that's don't you it's like psychology one oh one. But King is critiquing that idea, right? That like there are so many bad things happening in the world. Cod overfishing, oil spills, uh, corporate malfeasance, right? But we allow these things to occur until they come right up to our face, and the problem is already here, and the problem is irresolvable, and then we say, oh yeah, that was, that was bad, I feel terrible about that. Right? But, but at that point, it's just about us, it's just about assuaging our own guilt and grief, it's not about actually fixing the problem. Right? So it's an illusion of care. If we actually did care, what would we do? This is the kind of implication that King is driving towards. If King actually did care about that young, the family with the young kid who has fetal alcohol disease. What would he have done? Go ahead. Stayed in like, kind of like a support system, I guess. Yeah, Marissa, precisely. He wouldn't have just like bailed on his friend when the, t when the going got tough. Just like the husband wouldn't presumably have bailed on his family when the going got tough too, right? What he's trying to get us to think about is that like, when a problem or a situation presents itself that we know is wrong, what we shouldn't do is wait until it's too late and then express, oh man, that sucks, I can't believe it went that way. We should actually step into the fray there and do something about it. Which gets us kind of to the next point that I wanted to talk through is that this chapter, in many respects, is different from the others precisely because this chapter kind of provides us with a call to arms that the other chapters don't entirely. This chapter seems more personal. Why? Because he shares like, his own private story. Private story. This is really important because we could say, right, he's been sharing stories about himself the entire book. Right? He's talked about himself the entire book. But there's a distinction between the story that he tells at the end of this book about himself and the stories that he's telling earlier in this book about himself. And that distinction is what he calls the distinction between a public story and a private story. But what does he mean by that? What's a public story and what's a private story? Like the other ones are public because he tells them to other people and like talk about it orally. Yeah. And then this one's private because it's one that he won't like speak to people. And he said the only people that know it are like who it happened to and the people who read the book. Yeah. It's this like is a, a secret. Yeah, it's kind of like a secret, right? Private story. This is a really interesting distinction that he runs out in this chapter, that like the idea that he equates public stories with oral expression, and he equates private stories with written expression. The idea here is that this story about like his bailing on a friend who has had a bad, bad family life, this story is a private story because it's a story that he wouldn't share like in front of an audience. It's only a, sh a story that he would share on the page, that kind of like mute signifier right, that he talks about. Why? What is it about this story that's different than the others that makes it something that has to be private? He says at the end, like, it's not because he's guilty or anything, but it's because it doesn't, it's not like a good story to tell. Yeah. It doesn't really have a plot or anything. Yeah, this is a really great point. It's like, at one level, like, he knows that he did something wrong, and like he, he hopes that if you go on and tell this story again, he hopes that you don't say his name, right? He says at the end, like, don't include me in this story. I kind of come off as an asshole. But like the, the point that, the broader point that he's making is that he doesn't actually tell this story like in a public setting because it's not quote unquote a good story, right? 
that's such a fascinating point to me because what King is trying to kind of move us toward is exactly what I'm trying to get you guys to move toward in thinking about literature and thinking about reading these books is that it's not just about the moral, right? It's not just about the content. It's not just about, like, whether or not we praise or blame King for his actions in this story. It's also about how the story is told, right? It's also about the fact of, like, whether or not this story is good, like, whether it has a cool ending or not, that kind of stuff. So this is a story that he keeps private because it's different in character than the other ones, right? It's different in like the way that it makes him come off. It's different in the moral that it's supposed to expose and present to us. But it's also private because it's not a great story, right? There's something different about the techniques and the strategies that he's using as well, okay? And that actually gets us into that other question that I wanted to ask you guys, which was like, talking about different techniques and different strategies in this chapter and the stories that he's telling here as opposed to the stories that he has been telling us. What's different about this chapter? At a structural level, like how it starts and how it, how it ends, what's different? It's about the turtles. Yeah, it doesn't begin with the turtles. Where'd the turtles go, man? What's going on there? Why? Why are the turtles gone? Yeah. Because in the beginning, he's like quoting another, I think it was like a Nigerian storyteller. Yeah. And it like lays out for the rest of the section. He's like, we, it was something like we live by stories and live in them. And if we change the stories, we can change our lives or yeah. something like that. Yeah. It's a different idea than the idea that he's had previously, right? And so the turtles fall away. It's also interesting that this is the first time that he keeps that move where he quotes another author. But this time it's a Nigerian, as opposed to all the other times where it's a native author. Right, that's an interesting distinction as well. So the moral's different, that's why Turtles is gone. But what's the effect of that kind of repetition now falling away? Yeah. So it kind of like grabs your attention, it's like, all right, like he's kind of trying to get to the point. Yeah, maybe like, well it definitely, okay, this is kind of like an English 290 thing. Right? Like the intro to the major... Yeah. Anyways. This is an intro to English 290 thing, like an intro to the major thing, but like when you spot something like an anomaly like this, where like there's a repetition over the course of five chapters, and then it abruptly ends, like that's a moment where you should be like, oh, the flashbulb should be going off in your brain, if you still have a brain after the 75 minutes, right? That should be like, oh, something's going on, something's different here. Like, this repetition has happened over and over and over again. There must be a strategic or thoughtful reason why it's not here, right? And Brendan, what you're pointing us to is like, okay, maybe the strategic or thoughtful reason is he's trying to emphasize something in this chapter that he hasn't before, right? He's using a different type of story. It's a private one, not a public one. Um, what is he emphasizing, right? What's different, right? He's trying to get us to think differently with this last chapter, one of the ways I would suggest to you that he's trying to get us to think differently is like he's trying to kind of broaden out the arguments that he's making. A lot of people did this really well in the post. Like, Caroline, you were like, okay, I get that the argument being made in this last chapter of the book is that like the situational ethics idea, that like we only care after something has uh, been presented to us and that it's irresolvable. But like that big idea, what a lot of you kind of went to in the post is like that reminds me of the situation between settlers and natives, right? 
this idea that we don't really care about native life, we don't care about native culture, we don't care about native identity until it comes right up to our face and we actually can't do anything about it. And so at that point, we try to make ourselves feel better as opposed to actually taking action and actually stepping into the fray, right? But why does he need to go away from nativeness to make that claim? Like there was another post, one of you guys, or maybe somebody who's taking the class online was like, it's kind of interesting to me that there's like no native stuff happening in this last one. Yeah. I think it was because he knows like that not a lot of people know about like Native American culture and like the history. So he tried to put like he put in a lot of situations like oil spills and the yeah. cause like that more people would relate to so they would better understand what he was trying to say. Yeah good. So at this last moment, right, this last chance he has to get across these ideas that he's trying to portray to us, he's broadening his kind of available repertoire of cultural markers, right? Instead of talking about native issues, he's talking about things that are more broadly known, right? At the time that this was written, like Exxon and Enron would have been things that most readers would have understood, right? We don't really now because those things are pretty far in the past at this point, right? Big things, but still kind of far in the past. So yeah, what he's doing is he's kind of universalizing the message. Right, this is a message that, been, that has been over five chapters really, really specific to Native American issues and Native American identity. Right? We get the turtle story. We get the quote from a Native author. And then we get a chapter about Native issue. In the last chapter here, that, those ideas are being universalized. They're being more generalized. Right? Maybe to bring in the audience. Maybe to better teach that one foundational theme that he wants to get across. And so we, the turtle story's gone, right? We get a quote from a Nigerian author as opposed to a native one. He takes it out of a native context, right? So what is he suggesting about that native context then? Of course it's important, but what he's suggesting is that like these ideas, these issues that are in play in this book when I'm talking about Native America, they're actually bigger than that. Like the idea, to go back to Anna's point, like you don't actually have to care about native issues to care about the things that I'm talking about because what I'm talking about is like big questions of ethics and morals and behaviors. Like the things that we do when problems are, conf we confront problems. Do we turn away from them or do we try to do something about them? All right, so this is why, yeah, Brendan, in the post, you said like this, uh, a really nice turn of phrase, like in, in this chapter, it feels like he's pressing us, right? That he's frustrated and that he's trying to get us to do th something. He's kind of digging a stick in. He's poking a stick to us, right? He's prodding us along in maybe a different way than he has before. It's kind of an interesting, again, speaking to like rhetorical and narrative strategies, it's kind of a really interesting strategy at the end of the book. The book's all about native issues, right? We read it in this class to think through those native issues, to put them in our toolbox, tool belt, whatever. But at the end, he's like, no, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I want to talk about a private story, right? And that private story is like that lesson that you should be able to take from all of these more particular, more, pre more precise native issues. So yeah, it's just, I, I encourage you to think about that as like a rhetorical or narrative move, if it's effective, how, whether it's effective, all of those things. Like what does it do to the reader to have a shorter chapter at the end that's more universalized, less attuned to native experience? Right, what it suggests is that like native experience is not this thing over there. 
right? That these issues are not just kind of like way over here and we don't really have to deal with them until they confront us and then we can deal with them to make ourselves feel better. What it suggests is that they're always here and that we should be dealing with them all the time, right? Because they are examples of bigger problems, bigger concerns, ethical concerns, moral concerns, that kind of stuff. Any other thoughts on that? Does that make sense? Like kind of what he's doing in that last chapter? Yeah, we confront this all the time when we read this book in this class and other classes that I've taught it in. It's like, this chapter seems different. It's anomalous, right? But when you find that anomaly, right, that's the moment where you can really say something kind of precise and important and interesting. Right? Repetition is one thing, fair enough, right? But when you find that anomaly, that's, like the, that's interpretive gold, right? There's something that the author is trying to tell you by switching things up. Cool? I'm happy with that. Have a good rest of the day. Good to see you all. Let me know if you have any questions.